Well, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Stanley Hiller was born in November 1924. He was something of a child genius. And by the age of eight, he had created a gas-powered go-kart for children for which he took many orders. But by 15, he had designed the world's first successful coaxial helicopter. He was admitted to Berkeley University in the same year, and within a couple of years, he presented his design for the XH-44, known as the Helicopter, to the U.S. Army, which was then flown during the Second World War. Heller co-founded United Helicopters in 1945, but by 1966, he left all of that behind to pursue a second career as a turnaround specialist. I think that's a great name for someone who invented a helicopter, a turnaround specialist. But he created the Heller Investment Company to go in and revitalize failing companies. Heller entered each new challenge by getting involved in the day-to-day running of these firms, by rolling up his own sleeves and getting involved in the production or the work that was going on in each of these failing firms. He was known as the man of the great turnaround. This morning, I want to reintroduce you to the greatest turnaround specialist in all of history. As we we join together in Ephesians chapter 2, First of all, considering verses 1 to 3, under the heading, the danger for humanity without God. The danger for humanity without God. Just like these companies that Stanley Hiller invested in, we read in the words of Paul that universally speaking, we as the human race are dead on our feet. Look at the verse 1. You were, right the way through to the all of us in verse 3. Paul doesn't simply diagnose everyone from everywhere with a serious condition in verse 1, but he pronounces us dead, dead in our trespasses and sins, which simply means that we have been severed from the life of God. When Adam sinned in Genesis chapter 3, physical death entered the world. Dust you are and dust you will return to is what God says. But Adam also died, not just physically, but spiritually in that moment. He had walked in such close fellowship with God in those early days in Eden, and he was connected with God as the source of all life. But Adam chose to separate himself from God, who was the source of all life, and as a result, he faced death. Just like Adam, we are like a flower that's been cut down. We believe we can live life outside the life-giving water and nutrients of God's presence and the roots of his goodness and grace. We have chosen to cut ourselves off from God. And our spiritual death is caused by our transgressions and sins, verse 1 to 3 tells us. Two words, transgressions and sins. Transgressions are deliberate. God says one thing, but we do the other. While sins are a not even bothering to listen to what God says and acting upon it. Or to summarize it like this, transgressions and sins means that we are rebels 
and failures. And the biblical diagnosis is, as rebels against God and failures against God's standard, we are dead. Dead in those sins. Now you might say, David, that sounds particularly harsh. As I look around Macrofelt, there are lots of people who are not Christians, and yet they appear to be very much alive. How can you say that they're dead? You know, the sporty people with the body of an athlete, or the business people or farmers who seem active and agile and hardworking and nimble and busy, or the musically gifted people who compose wonderful songs and produce beautiful pieces, or what about the really intelligent people, you might say to me, with really sharp minds, or the stunningly beautiful people with their good looks? What about even those young families who seem to present themselves perfectly in every Instagram picture that they post. You might ask, is Paul really saying these people are dead? They seem very much alive. We must say, yes, the Bible portrays them as dead. For in the sphere which matters most, which is not the body nor the mind nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life. They are as unresponsive to God as a corpse. I read on the, the Radio 1 website on Thursday past about a girl called Katie who was bemoaning the fact that in nine weeks she hadn't had her nails done or fillers or eyelashes done. And she says, now I'm beginning to see in the mirror what I'm really like. And Paul is showing us in a spiritual sense what we are really like. We're dead. We've cut ourselves off from the giver of life, and that has led to spiritual death. The second danger of humanity without God is for those who have simply, verses 2 and 3, drifted along. Drifted along. Verse 2 tells us that we have just followed the ways of the world. That just means we've drifted along with everyone else. It is doing what everyone else is doing, living how everyone else is living all without any reference to the God who created us. In fact, verse 2 tells us it is the way of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is simply shorthand for Satan. We just blow wherever the latest wind of change takes us, and Satan can sit back quite happily and watch us do that. He doesn't have to do very much as long as we're so obsessed with what others are doing, so busy looking at all that is around us that we have no time to consider that God is above us. And Satan is quite happy with that. Spend five minutes online on any given day and you'll notice that younger people and older people are uploading the same dance that everyone is doing, recording the same challenges their friends are doing, watching the same Netflix programs, downloading the same apps that everyone else is. Families are recreating the same photo opportunities. Individuals are listening to the same music. We so unthinkingly follow the ways of the world. This kingdom of the air phrase that's used here is a place that is denoted in the scriptures that is between earth and heaven. It's almost cloudy. It's foggy. It's somewhere between the two. It's this place of the wind blows and the fog blinds us, blowing this way and that depending on what is popular at any given time, without much thought. And you see, the danger here is not the devil. <laughs> it's us. 
One of the greatest dangers to humanity is actually ourselves. Above and beyond anything else, we are our own greatest threats to our own eternities. How do I know? Verse 3 tells me. We love to gratify the cravings of our flesh. That simply means not this flesh as in what we've got here and the externals of our body, but it's our desires, our, our thoughts, it, it's our hearts. And we are addicts to ourselves. We are me-aholics. We just want to find the right blend in life to make me, to make us feel comfortable, good about ourselves. And we are always trying to find that happy place, that me time, that me high, as it were, injecting ourselves with things that will satisfy us. And that's doing life without God. And to that, Paul gives us a very stern warning. For not only are we dead, not only are we drifting along, but we are deserving of judgment. That's what verse 3 tells us. We are by nature deserving of wrath. Many years ago on holiday in the Yorkshire Dales, we spent the day playing on what looked like a beautiful stream. We were building dams with the rocks. We were creating crossing places for the stream to escape through. We were sailing tin cans down the river, just like it was a little race. But that night, we all got sick. Why? It transpired a sheep had died, and its rotting carcass was further upstream. It was polluting and infecting all the water downstream. And it didn't show, but that stream was dangerous to play in. And as human beings, as C.S. Lewis talks about, daughters and sons of Adam and Eve, the course was set back in the Garden of Eden. And death flows down from that stream of Eden in all its sin that they committed down to us without exception. We are all in a desperate situation as children of wrath, as this verse talks about. We share in this congenital, hereditary heart disease that no one is exempt from. I've used the illustrations before, but it's so radically true, isn't it? Whenever you see a child in its high chair toss the custard off the edge and then point to its brother or sister, blaming them as opposed to themselves, no one taught that child to throw a tantrum or tell a lie. But fast forward to an adult who sits in a restaurant and as the waiter or waitress sets the plates down and is told very clearly by the waitress, don't touch that plate, it's hot, be careful, what's our instant reaction? We touch that plate to see if it's hot. You see, there's something within us. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Our natural condition sets us on that dangerous path, walking away from God. We are naturally inclined to sin. No one is exempt from that poison stream which flows into each of our hearts and lives. And today, verse 3, we stand condemned. 
I watched a modern murder, murder mystery film a few weeks ago starring Daniel Craig. It was called Knives Out. And the plot had a very clever character twist in that the maid who had primary responsibility for the murdered man could not lie, tell a lie, without vomiting. Every time she fibbed, she threw up, which made questioning her by the detectives and getting the truth out of her remarkably easy. And the whole story revolved around this physical quirk in this girl. And in a strange way, so it is with God. He has a regular response to sin that is always consistent. We are all under God's wrath, which is his settled, consistent hatred against sin. God has always been absolutely opposed to sin, without exception. By nature, we are sinful. By nature, God is sinless. And let us never think that there's anything inconsistent about God revealing his wrath against sin and judgment alongside the fact that we say that he's a God of love. There's a perfect harmony in the two. In fact, it speaks of God's utter consistency. One ancient writer put it like this. He who does not get angry doesn't care. You know, if you have a very close family member and they defy your good advice that's given to them in love and go the opposite direction from the advice that you gave that was done out of a caring concern, and they go their other way and leads to all sorts of grief. Do you not get angry for them ignoring your loving advice? Why? Because it's given out of a heart that cares and loves. And if God sees sin in our world and did not get angry with it, we would question if God was a God of love at all. Does he really care, we would ask. But because God loves this world, it is right that the only righteous one should deal with the sin that has spoiled it. And in these opening verses of chapter 2, we read that we are children of wrath, heading for God's judgment. Because we are dead in our sins, incapable of doing anything to save ourselves, we need someone from outside to enter in, someone to bring new life, because corpses don't have a habit of having a heart restart. But praise God, that is not where this chapter ends. As we are introduced secondly this morning with great relief to the delight of humanity with God. The delight of humanity with God. We read in these verses that Paul lifts us to the heights by reminding us that God breaks into our lives and transforms our situation by doing two things for us primarily. First of all, he reached down. He reached down. Verses 4 to 10 must absolutely thrill us. In fact, it is the test if we are spiritually alive or not, whether these verses in verses 4 to 10 thrill us today. For to this backdrop of sin, we see that God is not in one almighty huff, just standing there tapping his foot, waiting to condemn us. Rather, he is the primary actor in this world, wanting to save us. Without his intervention, we would be dead and we would be condemned in his wrath. And this is the story of the whole Bible. This is the nature of God himself who takes action to keep his anger from destroying humanity. 
this greatest of all our needs before a holy God has actually been met by the same holy God. And once again, as you trace your finger carefully through these verses, you will see how he does it. Verse 5, by making us alive with Christ. Verse 6, raising us with Christ. Verse 6, seating us in Christ. Verse 7, his infinite kindness expressed to us in Christ. Verse 10, recreated for good works in Christ. Yes, God's wrath was hot and ready and just, but he enters into our mess and he acts out of love. The Son of God has faced the condemnation of God. He has received the wrath of God that we deserve. The Son of God has faced death. In his humanity, he died. He knew separation from his Father at the cross. The Son of God became a corpse as the Father carried out the eternal court case against humanity's rebellion as all the transgressions and sins of the world, all our failures, all our rebellions, fell on the innocent Son of God. He hung there condemned as he took on the sin of our greatest rebellions and our most spectacular failures. The NIV makes a complete mess, I'm afraid, of verse 4. For the emphasis in the Greek hangs on just two words, just as our eternity and salvation hangs on these same two words. Because verse 4 should actually read, but God, because of his great love for us, but God, all the sin and transgression and rebellion and failure, but God enters in. Drifting, defiant, dead, but God enters in. Here is the greatest turnaround in all of human history. Greater than Stanley Hiller and his companies and his helicopters. Here is the turnaround of verse 4. The great turnaround for our souls. Aren't you thankful for those two little three-letter words that change our eternity? Where this God meets us not just at the point of our greatest need, but meets our only eternal need. Answering every accusation of every sin that condemns us. Oh, I'm a liar, but God is rich in mercy. I'm a gossip, I'm an exaggerator, I'm not good with my words, but God, because of his great love for us. I was a God-hater, but God, out of his kindness, I have committed sexual sin, but God, who is pure and holy, I have caused strife and angst, but God, who is a God of peace, I am backbiting and bitter, but God, who never said even a mumbling word, at the cross. I am greedy for money and obsessed with what I have, but God, who, though he was rich, for our sakes became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. Arrogant and proud, of course we are, but God, who humbled himself even to death, death on a cross, faithless and forgetful, but God, he is faithful. I am disobedient to my parents and disruptive in my family, but God has adopted us and made us his children. We are by nature objects of God's wrath, but God, who is full of grace and mercy, saves us from the wrath to come. God steps in and saves us from himself. Are there any two sweeter words in all of the Bible than but God? It's almost as if God saw this letter 
of great eternal bankruptcy sitting poking out of the envelope on our on our kitchen table we open it and we feel sick because we just do not know how we can pay back the debt of our rebellion and failure we hide it away from others we don't want others to see it because we're ashamed and embarrassed what could we do how can we pay but god lifts that letter and opens that envelope and sees the debt that is owed, but he brings out his own son and has him hang on that crucifixion tree of condemnation and then with his own blood writes off our debts forever. Our God reaches down for us and it doesn't end there. For we also see that he raises us up. Verse 5. This God, he is rich in mercy, makes us alive we were dead and now he makes us alive the cold grip of sin and death has been loosed from us through the cross and the grave but you know what paul is wanting us to see is that those are not just events which produce benefits for us but actually events in which we participate we die to sin at the cross we are raised and resurrects a new life we sit on the throne of eternity with our Savior. We are raised with Jesus, and not just at the end in our bodily resurrection when Jesus Christ returned. This is our status as Christians even now. We're already included in the victorious, redemptive events of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. That is why Paul links us with Christ on at least three occasions in these verses. You see, the gift cannot be separated from the giver. What is true of Jesus Christ is now true of us. Sin is dealt with, for we are bound up with Christ at the cross. Eternal life is ours. We're bound up with the risen Jesus. We have a place to go each day as we live in the realm of welcome, power, grace, and glory. For we have been raised, verse 6, with Christ to the heavenly realms. In other words... We're not to be footering around waiting for our own death or Jesus' return. We have access to all that is Christ's. Yes, even now, the love of his Father, the power of his Spirit, the reassurance of a home, a true life to live. For we have been recreated like Adam and Eve before the fall. We can walk each day in the presence of God, enjoying his company, reassured of his love, knowing that that is where we belong. But having traced out our corpse-like deadness towards him, our just condemnation before his holiness, why has God persisted in reaching down and gone to such incredible lengths to, to raise us up. Why? Why such a transformation from our wretchedness to this wonderful new state? Why has he done it? To enter in and turn things round and open up that this is for rebels such as we are. Why is a great question, isn't it? And there can only be one logical answer. As Paul describes the riches of grace. The riches of grace. Look at verse 4. We could say of that verse, Our God is a wealthy merchant of mercy. Mercy is not treating someone as they deserve to be treated. But grace takes things to the, the next level. 
And it is by grace we have been saved. You see, Paul keeps pressing in on us that what we have from God is unmerited favor. Verse 8 reveals that it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And it's not from ourselves. It's nothing that we have that we can boast about it. It's a gift that we receive from God. It reminds me of a story of a young lady who had gone to serve as a physiotherapist in Nepal in the 1990s. Her parents had been dead against her going. And yet she sensed God's call to go and she served there for two happy yet heartbreaking years. But as Christmas approached, her parents bemoaned the fact that they would not see her at Christmas and would have to make do with a crackly phone call and a really bad line from, from North Down to, to Nepal on Christmas Day. But come Christmas Eve, their front doorbell went and they came to the door only to discover a huge parcel. It was addressed to this couple. And it was very clearly a box because of the stamps on it from Nepal. With excitement, they wanted to open it and see what their daughter had sent them for Christmas. The parcel was too heavy to lift. And so they opened it on the spot, ripping back the parcel tape to look in, only to discover as they opened it, it wasn't a parcel from their daughter in Nepal. Inside that box was their daughter from Nepal. She had arranged to fly home for Christmas and surprise her folks with the help of her sister and planned the whole box and the doorstep surprise for her mum and dad. All part of the elaborate plan in which the greatest gift was their daughter and their names were on the box to receive it. The daughter was the gift and she was the giver. And friends, that's our God. We often bemoan like these parents that we no, we don't know what God's trying to teach us in this day. Or he seems very far away and he's never offering any hope or help to us in these lockdown isolation days. Is he not? Really? But in those moments, we are absolutely forgetting that he has stood not only on the doorstep of our world, but he's entered into our world. In verse 8, he's come as a gift of God from heaven. Like the parents in my story, we didn't plan how we would do it or reconnect with God. We cannot boast about doing anything. It's all about how we receive this gift of salvation by faith. Verse 7, these are the incomparable riches of his grace. Friends, if you were to ask a Christian why God should send Christ to die for him or her, why God would give two hoots about someone who is evil to the core of their being, not to mention their overt acts of rebellion and sin. Ask a Christian that, and if he's got his head screwed on on that particular day, he'll simply exclaim, it doesn't make sense, does it? That a holy God would give a moment's thought to sinners? It's beyond belief. It's beyond our wildest dreams. But our God is not conventional, and grace is his biggest surprise. There is no explanation why God would do it, except that that is the way God is. And that's the way Jesus delights to be. But friends, I've got to ask you this morning, what do you do with that gift? Don't we need to receive it? Let me ask you if you actually have received this gift of God by faith. He has nothing better to give you, and he has given you nothing less than himself. But verse 8 reminds us we've got to receive it by faith. 
And that faith is not just agreeing with the Bible storyline and saying, yes, I believe that there's a God out there somewhere in my life. I don't deny that. No, it's not so much that. It's so much more. It's entrusting ourselves to all that he is. It's acknowledging that we are dead and we need new life. You need to acknowledge today that you're a failure in God's sight. You're a rebel in God's sight. Just like we had Stanley Hiller on the screen at the start, uh, another famous inventor who, who's transformed vacuum cleaning in these last 30 years as a gentleman by the names of James Dyson. And what's so significant about the Dyson vacuum cleaner is the fact you can see the dirt that's been lifted. Friends, see the dirt of your sin that caused the death of the Son of God on that cross. And then see the offer of salvation that raises us up, that gives us a new start, that is by grace alone. Friends, will you not receive it by faith and say today that Jesus is not just my Savior, but he is Lord and he is prepared to raise us? Why would you reject it? Why would you re reject the gift that's sitting on your doorstep today? For he's not only given you the gift, he's the giver. And the gift is himself. And verse 10 leads us on finally to see that if we truly are his people, if we are Christians, it results in activity. It results in activity, verse 10. This closing verse speaks of the life of God pulsing through us. Do you see it there? It says there, for we are God's handiwork masterpieces created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the evidence in verse 10 that we really are alive in Christ. For Christians here are described as this workmanship, this handiwork. The Greek word behind it is the word poema, from which we get our English word poem. We are God's lyrical work of art. It's as if God is writing his love lyrics all over our lives, displayed for the world to see. A few months ago, our Angie was asked to write a haiku poem for school. And having enjoyed a little bit of poetry at school, I felt this homework well. It fell to me. So the two of us sat down and we wrestled with words in the thesaurus to come up with some meaningful depth to this poem. For Angie was telling me that house points and recognition on a school notice board were at stake if it was well written. But when the marks came back and the results were in, the poem that we'd worked on hadn't even made the notice board. I think I was more gutted than Andrew. But the work that he had put in and I had helped with, the leech name hadn't been recognized. Folks, that was just a year eight English homework that proved that I wasn't as poetic as I thought I was. But God makes no mistakes. He is shaping us. He has made us precious. He wants us to be his display board of grace for the world. He is the great potter, the eternal artist, the glorious creator who is at work in us. Our lives are to be what they were originally created to be, lived out in praise and reliance and in relationship to him, 
The story goes of Paul Gibson, former principal of Ridley Hall in Cambridge University. When a massive portrait of him was unveiled in his retirement, he stood up and in his speech he paid tribute to the artist. He said, in future people will not ask, who's the man in the picture? But rather, who painted this wonderful portrait? In our case, our God has displayed more than creative skill. And we are to be his eternal exhibits, God's masterpieces of mercy on display. But let me ask us all today, <clears throat> do our lives focus on ourselves or the painter? The saved or the savior? Which leads me to ask as a Christian, where is God working in us? How is it seen in your life and mine? What kind of evidence is there in your life of God's grace? Where is it seen? What if people actually experienced us as those who were full of joy for the giver? What if they saw in us the grace that's been extended to us, pouring out from us? What if they saw in us the evidence of moving from disobedience to obedience, our lives being turned around by the master turnarounder? What if our lives were marked by life in the midst of a world that's full of death? What if they saw in us a faith that was actually worth having? Is there a natural expression that oozes out from us of a life that is joined to a living God? Do others see in us that great turnaround? As Ephesians 4 verse 1 will highlight for us in a few weeks' time, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Christian be who you are, Christ's. For we are more sinful than we ever realized, but we're more loved than we ever dared dream. Maybe we've asking ourselves today, can we really be that bad? Are we really dead? Yes, we are. It's that serious. Facing only condemnation and God's wrath but at the same time asking, can it really be this good? Yes, for in receiving that gift, we have a God who reached down, a God who raised up, and all by the riches of his indescribable grace in Christ Jesus. In him, we have the God of the great turnaround. Grace means that there is nothing we can do that will make God love us more. And grace means there is nothing we can do that will make God love us less. Amen.